Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hello, you four. Welcome back to more Bibliophiles. It's season two. Today's episode is entitled Little Women, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I love it. <laughs> Which is a reference to another famous movie. Wow, I was really expecting kind of a chuckle out of that, but no chuckles. I chuckle. That's all right. Can you hear right. my chuckle? Moving on. <laughs> no, I want to ask you guys a question first, though, and it just occurred to me before we got on the air, and I was so excited to ask it of you. Beginning with the youngest person in the room and ending with the oldest. I feel singled out right now, but okay. I would like to know what your first memory of seeing a movie is. Mm. Your very first conscious memory of watching a movie. Okay, okay. Starting with me then, right? As the youngest. Starting with you, Megan. I can't remember. It's a toss-up between two. I think that it was a cartoon Winnie the Pooh with the, the blustery day. Winnie the Pooh and the blustery day. I think that's the first one that I remember. It could be either that one or in my mind, it's connected to the Disney Peter Pan. Hmm. Ooh, I like that. And what is what is your impression of that moment? Is it warm and fuzzy? Oh, how could Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day not be warm and fuzzy? I mean, it was delightful. <laughs> you never look at an autumn leaf the same way again. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Mine, although I know that this isn't technically chronologically true, I don't think. But my first memory of going to the movies is Anastasia, which I saw in theaters with mom. And was totally overjoyed by. Wait, I think I misunderstood this question. Do you mean your first experience going to the movies? I mean, the, f the first the first conscious moment that you have that's a memory of seeing a movie. It doesn't have to be at the theater. Oh, okay, that just happens to be my version of it. So baby Ian went to see Anastasia in the theaters. Were you terrified? Yeah. Somebody probably owes you an apology for that. And it's no. probably me. Anastasia was great. Yeah. I thought your first movie experience was Babe. I, I think you're right. That's why I said it's not chronologically true that Anastasia was my first. But I don't remember seeing Babe in the theaters. I do remember seeing Anastasia. Well, I remember you seeing Babe. And I also remember what you said to Dad when we got home. Go ahead. Do you remember? He said, Dad, we saw a movie today. It was about babes. <laughs> Uh, that yeah, sounds nice. about right. <laughs> Priceless. He was Ian from the cradle, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, Emily? Oh, my memory is so terrible. But I want to say... Okay, my, fear, my first movie-related memory has to do with getting a Toy Story, like, Happy Meal toy. From McDonald's and being excited and I think it was a puppet of the dinosaur mm -hmm. and then like seeing Toy Story and being really excited about having the puppet that's I think my first conscious movie related memory wow 
classic. Uh, generations are a That's thing. a classic. You really can't argue with that. Doesn't seem like that was that long ago, I know. does it? <laughs> I was a grown-up. It's very <laughs> weird. It might have been... Hold on. I might need to... Well... It's your memory, Emily. It's a good it's, yeah, you, you can have whatever have you want. That's right. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm right afraid to here. check the release date on Toy Story. It might be that. It was 11. One. Emily can't remember anything before the age of 12. <laughs> <laughs> kind of true. Uh, but it had to have been the second Toy Story because I was only four when the first one came out. Yeah, that's right. You can remember things from when you were four. You can remember things from before you were one. This is a debate that happens in my household. Okay, which one of you goes next? I go next. You're going youngest to oldest, right? Yeah, I'm the older woman. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, wow. My earliest memory is uh, Walt Disney's animated The Jungle Book. Oh, awesome. But I can't remember if that's earlier than Walt Disney's The Love Bug. Oh, yeah, that was Oh, The Love Bug. Which is a live action movie about the Volkswagen Beetle with a heart. Who gets involved yes. in rally road races against evil uh, antagonists and got all of us hooked on car racing. On car racing. Is that the one where he ends up eventually with giant wooden wagon wheels instead of tires? I don't remember like that. Like limping across the finish line? All I remember is all of the drivers wore these stupid little tight-fitting helmets. With uh, little snaps across the place where the visor snaps in, except nobody was wearing the visor. So they just had these little snaps across their forehead. (laughs) (laughs) As though a helmet was going to be much protection. They must be driving slow enough that a crash was really more of an inconvenience than a danger. They sped the film up. They were hauling butt. I'll tell you that. (laughs) That is great. Okay. Last but not least, mom, what's your, what's your first movie memory? Okay. So it's a, it's kind of a, a toss-up. I can't quite remember which came first, but I remember being taken to a movie that was not a kid's movie, but I was just sort of taken with my parents because they didn't think I was paying attention yet. Big mistake. Is this going to be a sad story? Yeah, I feel like it's going to be sad. <laughs> this might have been, she can I make do anything sad. some sort of a fiery <laughs> crash on the screen that I go. found terrifying, <laughs> and we left the theater. <laughs> So fear and terror is your first movie memory. It was, but I, I it was actually yeah. the other one. It wasn't really any better. It was Doctor Seuss's The Lorax. Oh um, no! I speak for the trees. That one, you know, the little environmental yes. diatribe um, with the barbalutes and those little yeah, barbaloot little barbalutes in their barbalute yeah. suits. <laughs> we're having to like relocate, and they were all so sad, and I cried so hard. My mom had to leave the movie theater with me so you my wept, first two wept movie for memories the plight of the native american were abortive <laughs> and she's been walking out of movies ever since oh, she's yeah. been walking out of movies <laughs> this is when she she went home and she took refuge in a book and she decided the printed page is superior <laughs> to the screen i'm a child what can i say <laughs> <laughs> oh that delivered that that delivered exactly what i was hoping it would that Good was question. really fun yeah, it was fun really fun Okay, well, so to, to get back on topic, we are discussing the first, well, we're, I guess we're together shooting a volley, our first volley in the discussion of literary adaptations for the screen. And Megan, you are in the hot seat today Woo-hoo. because it was your recommendation that we discuss the, un, well, is, it a, is it a holy or an unholy trinity of movie adaptations of Little Oh, Women? I think definitely a holy one. And I'll go, I'll go the holy trinity. all yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, take us, take it away from there. What is your impression of these three adaptations? 
Well, I have a soft place in my heart for Louisa May Alcott. I think that most young girls do. Little Women is a book for little women. And so every mother gives their daughter this book when she's coming along as kind of the archetype coming of age story for a young woman. And mom did that for me. We had a class on it and talked about all the themes. And then we watched every single version of this that we could get our hands on, mostly because of one one principle. The atmosphere of this story is magical. It's warm and inviting. It's like a fireside scene of convivial, uh, sisterly, and motherly affection. And so who doesn't want to live in that world, right? The moment you realize this is a thing, you want to live there with the March family and be a March yourself. And it's just delightful. And before you really have the ability to look deeper than that, already the atmosphere of the story has welcomed you in. So from a young age, I watched all the ones that I could get my hands on, all the, the movie adaptations of this glorious novel. Now, how many of them did you, what was, what was the number at that point? At that point, I found three. And I know that there are more than that, but there are three that stand out as, well, not all of them I watched back in the day. One of them I watched recently. But there were two when I was a kid, and then now there's been a recent remake by, by Greta Gerwig that is absolutely fantastic. So there were two when I was a kid vying for first place. So it would have been, what, 19, the 1949 and then the 1994? Yeah, so the 1949 version is the one with Elizabeth Taylor and June Allison and Janet Lee as well from Psycho. Wow, there's a, there's a cast list for you. It really is. It's a star-studded cast and really well acted, but antiquated, you know, from the 1940s. Um, we say sappy. It's a black well, and white, right? Not black and white. It's color, but I think it's technicolor, and you can tell. Yeah. So I think that one, I've got all kinds of opinions, but that one I loved. Then it was remade in 1994, and that's the Christian Bale and Winona Ryder. I think it's Susan Sarandon as Marmy in that one. Kirsten Dunst as Amy. And I have memories of that one because at one point we were all in the basement doing our thing, choosing movies at Grandma's house. And somehow you won the lottery, which we boys um, generally Thank found you for admitting that in public. Somehow. I appreciate that. <laughs> Somehow found a way to win because we didn't want to watch whatever schmarm you wanted to put up on the screen. I know it. But we lost that day and we all had to sit. And I remember grandma, it was so funny. She must have thought this was hilarious. She was very stern <laughs> in the moment, but then she went upstairs and laughed to herself, I'm sure, because she wouldn't let the boys go play outside. We wanted to like rage quit having lost the battle and go outside and climb a tree. And she was like, no, no, no. You have to sit here and watch the movie because Megan and Molly Kate won. And this is how it's going to go. There's only two of them and only four of you. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I kind of liked it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Go ahead, Emily. It was pretty okay. I'm sure you're going to bring this up, but that one has the eternal question of why in the world Winona Ryder turned to Christian Bale at the height of his powers. <laughs> I know. He was such a foxy fox. The reason Molly and I wanted to watch it was not for any Christian moral reason. Powers. It was that Christian Bale was hot. <laughs> <laughs> How old oh, were you? Teen hearts oh, with Pat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they were, they were great. But I thought that the assignment today was to kind of give you which one I thought was good, which one was better, and which one was best. So I know the title of our episode today is is funny, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, but I actually want to lay it out there because I know that women feel strongly about this. I don't think any of those three versions I've just mentioned are bad. I think they all have things to recommend them, but I do have a favorite. So 
Okay, sweet. Well, start, I guess, start with good and then go to better and best. But do keep in mind those categories we were talking about. I mean, I'm interested to know what you think in terms of what kind of an adaptation this is, what the director was really after, what he focused on in these different versions. Absolutely. Well, I think the the solid, good, good version is the 1994 with Winona Ryder and Christian Bale. I think that some people may quibble with that. They might put that as the as the best option. I know that it's many of your favorite version, or at least it was until recently, but I think that it's just good. And here's why. It is a straight ahead, scene for scene recap of the book. It takes into account the thematic heft of the novel and emphasizes in particular the the wistfulness and the nostalgia of a childhood that's fading, exchanging womanly things for childhood scenes and the bittersweet elements of that. I think that it is really strong, directorially speaking, on the music that really emphasizes and heightens that atmosphere. And all of the performances of the actors and actresses are quintessentially clearly connected to the book. So I thought the director read the book and said, that was great. No changes necessary. Let's go scene for scene. And as a Let's result, just put it's it up iconic. on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost, I mean, it's a little bit like Anne of Green Gables, like mom was saying in our previous episode. It's word for word, scene for scene, lovely, but you don't have to read the book after seeing that movie. Huh. All right. Well, then I feel a shade less guilty for not having read it. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, mom. I was going to say the thing I remember best about that particular version of the movie was the soundtrack. I thought the score was fabulous in that yeah. movie. Yeah. 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 The music. Absolutely. I think it's Thomas Newman. And yeah, it's I think that's absolutely right. magical. Oh, Thomas Newman. Boy, he hasn't written a bad score that I know of. What I remember about that movie is Christopher Columbus, we're betrayed. <laughs> in that's fact, Ian, that is not that movie. That is, is that the wrong one? That is the older one. That's from 1949, and it is June Allison's version. And that's the reason that June Allison's version falls even better in my estimation. She is such a You mean a to tell me I have seen Joe. two I saw both of I've seen three I think maybe little women adaptations. I won more often than I'm admitting in the little movie game and well, made you watch you a lot of things. <laughs> but no, I think, okay. yeah, I think the 1949 version is even better in my estimation because of, like we were saying yesterday, one of the things that makes a movie remake good is that it sees the spirit of the novel and then gets into conversation with it. And I think that when it comes to atmosphere, one of the things about Alcott's novel is it's a little bit didactic. It's a fireside, it's a fireside story that you read to little girls calling them up to be good women eventually. And so it's a little heavy-handed even yeah, yeah, in parts, agreed. right? And when you read it, if you read it too late in life, you think, well, stop preaching at me. I know how to be a woman, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or if you're a man, you think, I'm not the target audience right. of this book. Right. Yeah, exactly. you put it down. This, this book isn't for me. What am I doing in here? No. <laughs> But I think that something about the tone of an old movie is a little didactic anyway. It's it's a little bit closer to a stage play in some ways. The way that they set up the scenes that characters walk in and out of and the camera doesn't move as much. The The way that they talk is a little bit more old-fashioned. It was suited to an old-fashioned kind of story that was going to have traditional themes at its heart. That makes sense. So I thought... It, it wasn't even on purpose on the part of the director, but he he nailed it. It was a good moment to make that movie, I guess. Right. It was the right time for it. So but it was it was also a scene for scene, line for line 
retelling? Yeah, it was for the most part. I don't think she made, I don't think that director made any dramatic alterations to the structure of the plot line in particular. There may have been differentiations in the the scripts. I know that the 1994 version modernized some things. Joe's character in particular is much more forward thinking. She has a conversation with the men when she goes to New York about transcendentalism. And you can hear the director interacting not only with Alcott's novel, but with Alcott's context, her and own her family. Yeah. And yeah, addressing the fact that her father was a transcendentalist and that they as a family suffered quite a bit, actually trying to practice transcendentalism, to put that into practice and differentiate themselves from the, the everyday Christian. So it's a little bit more, the 94 version is a little bit more in conversation with a larger worldview if that makes sense. Hmm. I like it. Yeah, I thought it was cool. So that's good. That's good and better. Let's talk about best. Oh, man. Well, I think you all have seen Greta Gerwig's uh, newest articulation of the storyline. It was in 2019 that she released Little Women again with a star-studded cast. Saoirse Ronan plays Joe. Timothy Chalamet, who is the it guy of Hollywood right now, plays Lori, which might be the best casting of all time. The guy looks like a 12-year-old, even when he's supposed he to be does. a man, yep. which really works for reasons that I hope we go into. Um, <laughs> works in the character so, for so much. I hope we go into. Well, no, because Lori is kind of, I don't know, he's boyish to the end of this story. And there's something about his character that isn't ever supposed to grow up. It's a little bit Peter Panny. Because that's that's the nostalgia of the piece is that he is a, a piece of her childhood, you know? Right. I get it. So, I, I, yeah, that's beautiful. So let me ask you guys sort of in turn, when you heard that there was another Little Women movie in the works, what was your instinctive gut level reaction? Dad, why? Yeah. <laughs> Emily? I was excited about the cast. But that's after you learned the cast, though. Just the idea well, of a Little Women movie coming again. I learned them together. Okay, all right. F- <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Mom, what did you think? Well, my thought was, how could they do it better than they had last time? Right. I, I mean, okay. I mentioned that score. It was fantastic. But I thought that the entire film was really well done. The second so one. you said your response was why also, except yeah. with an additional positive spin of why I loved the last one so much. Well, I thought, wow, that they're really... They've got a, a high bar set for them. They're going to have to really jump high to get over it. My reaction lacked that positive spin. I just thought, well, that box has been checked already. Well, several times. I actually think <laughs> I think that's kind of fun, actually, because the Greta Gerwig version seems to be drawing the pale a little bit broader than the previous articulations of the story and trying to welcome in not only women, but also men into this conversation. Yep. It can confirm. Be, can confirm. Yeah. Absolutely. Did it yeah. work for you yeah. guys? I, th- oh, I think I know certainly. how she did it, and I'm excited to talk about it. One of the things I think is that, well, particularly here, we really value deep, many-faceted stories. And I'm going to say something really controversial. I don't think Little Women, as Louisa May Alcott wrote it, is a deep, many-faceted story. Whoa, whoa. I don't. Whoa. Me either. Anyone who's I ever tried to teach the book has to agree with you. They have yeah. to. Yeah. It's saying Oof. one thing, and it's saying it very very straightforwardly, uh, lacking a lot of subtlety. (laughs) And though it is warm and fuzzy and comforting and nostalgic, it is not deep and thought provoking. And you know what I mean? And I think I I will also say that it's profound. Yeah, it is profound. profound. The thing she's saying is profound, but it's not deep. It's human. 
It's human and moving. It's maybe yeah. just made to be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I think so. Wasn't really intended to cause a lot of deep ruminations, maybe. Yeah, and I think Greta Gerwig saw that story, loved it, res- first and foremost respected what Louisa May Alcott was doing and and what it has done in the hearts of women for a long, long time. And then said, I think we need to fix a couple things in order to set these characters free. All mm. of them have potential to be living, breathing characters. But the way that Louisa May Alcott drew them is is shallow. It's one-dimensional. They're flat. They're flat. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so what you said, I want to stop you for a second, because you said that that she respected what Louisa May Alcott was after, what she was doing, and the experience that women upon women upon women over the years have had with the book. What struck me when I was watching it is that the experience that this book has caused is out of step, is deeper than the book itself. Yes. For a lot of people. And it struck me that maybe one of the things that sets this adaptation apart was the fact that... It was made with an eye to that rather than made to reproduce the book scene for scene. It was trying to produce instead the experience that people have had reading this beloved story. Interesting. I think so. I love that. That definitely ties into the character deepening that you see. She projects a possible reason for each character to behave the way that they do. And Alcott didn't do that. She didn't explain why Meg is constantly mooning about being poor when it doesn't seem to bother the rest of her sisters. Also, there's finally a reason for her to marry a poor guy because yes. it's James Norton instead of that right. you know, squirrely guy from the 1994 version. You're so right. There's finally a reason for her to I'm just here to James provide Norton. superficial comments. <laughs> James Norton's going to make more than one appearance on this podcast is all I have to say. He sure is. Man, what a hunk. <laughs> is giggle, it hot in here? That, that giggle was perfect. <laughs> Megan, Megan, say more, say more. Well, I was just, I'm just thinking through. I love that idea that Greta Gerwig projected for us all of our assumptions about why these characters might be the way that they are and in so doing deepened them. She projected a conflict onto each character and you can identify it. For Meg, it's poverty versus love. And the and in the, the fight between those two things, love wins every time and there's going to be hardship in it and she lets you see it. She gives you individual conversations between Meg and John Brooks after they're married to show how it goes and whether that choice was a good one and whether it will bring her joy in her future life. And that's a whole, there's character development there that the other movie versions and the book itself never touched on, right? She kind of gets married and then she disappears. For Beth, there's also a conflict. She's battling loneliness versus contentment at home. And in the older versions, there's this line, Beth says something to the effect of, I never had a dream like any of you guys to go out beyond the fireplace. So I guess that I was meant to die. I guess that I'll just <laughs> stay here then and oh, die Louisa young. May. I know. I mean, that's a really shallow thing to say. Nobody for ever a really says that. that. Is so deep. Oh my god! Yeah. Also terrifying. Oh, if you ever oh. find yourself without a dream, you're like, oh Crushing. no, oh, no. maybe Crushing I'm meant to die here. <laughs> I'm without a dream. I guess I'll just stay here then and die young. Oh, no. You know, like whoa. But no, she deepens, again, Gerwig deepens that character. And there are many scenes where Beth's purpose in the story is actually found at home. She deepens the home space by bringing all of herself and all of her gifts and all of her perceptions of her sisters to bear on that little world. It's not 
invalid just because it's little. And she lets that be a conversation in the story. She does this with every single character. But one of the things, before I talk about the other characters, I think that in particular, in setting all these characters free, she realized a problem with Alcott's story. And it was a problem of organization. Alcott's story has always been told in a linear fashion, chronologically from the beginning when they're really, really young to the end of the story when they're all happily married and or dead, moving on. And or dead. <laughs> so why right. would Joe go with middle-aged Professor Bear when she could have had Christian Bill? Yes. It's a problem, you guys. She, you get <laughs> Emily to will see. never forgive her. Well, I don't think, I actually think, this is funny and you can laugh, but I also think that a gener- generations of women will never forgive her for Joe not marrying Lori. You spend all of the time investing in young Joe and young Lori growing up together. Who doesn't love a story like that? See Anne Shirley and Gilbert Blythe. You watch them drive each other nuts and fall in love with one another. And when Anne Shirley tells Gilbert Blythe no, everyone throws the book out the window. It's what you do, right? Right. And in that story, Lucy Maud Montgomery or whatever her name is said, I know, I know. Don't worry, I don't <laughs> mean it. Back We're around. circling back around again. <laughs> we have to get it we have to get to Anne of South Africa before we can really wrap this up. <laughs> exactly. She goes, wait till Anne's in the universe and then we'll bring that back well, around. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Little concentric circles moving ever outward. Yes. Right. Alcott doesn't do that. She doesn't circle back around in the book. And I think that generations of women have been absolutely I mean, they've been pissed about it. So <laughs> don't say that. And you think maybe the director of this new this new version is one of those women. Oh, I really do. I do. Yes. Because I think, I don't know, I understand what Alcott was doing thematically in not letting Joe marry Lori. I think she was right, but we hated her for it. And I think Gerwig looks at Alcott and says, sister, I know what you're doing and there's a way to fix this. What we need is to see Joe with Professor Bear first. We need to see mature Joe in process being a woman already and have the childhood romance that she rejected as just a childhood romance hearkened back to every once in a while when she's insecure. Uh, That's how we need to see this story because that's the story you meant to tell. Here's Mm -hmm. Joe as a woman falling in love for real. Joe in the past wasn't, didn't know anything about love and neither did Lori. And we need to have that in its rightful place. And as a result, we got to put it second. We got to see that second chronologically. In the same way, she takes Amy. The Amy Lori thing has always been creepy. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. agree yes. with that, but she I totally. I've always known that I would marry. Well, the it's, not even, see, it's not even from Ew. the Amy side for me. It's from the Lori side. Yes. Like, well, didn't get the didn't get the one. There's another March sister. Exactly. Might as well. And in fact, worse than that, there's only one left because Beth just died. So better snap up Amy. <laughs> I mean, for real. We're running out of options here. It came across as a little bit sudden, hasty, creepy in the worst sense, impersonal in the best sense, right? It wasn't about Amy. I think that I've got all kind of reasons that I think I think that Greta Gerwig is awesome. But Amy is the main one. I think that she saw Amy's character and she thought, I don't think Alcott liked her very much. I don't think Mm -hmm. Alcott liked the character of Amy. And so she's never anything but annoying. 
She's never anything but a drag on Joe's ticket. And then she gets Lori in the end, and that's why we hate her. <laughs> that's your, why we hate her. When you read it in your head, her voice is up here, yes. and she cares about her nose. So then Gerwig got Florence Pugh, whose voice, whose voice is deeper than mine. Which, Florence Pugh's voice is deeper than mine. That really caused a lot of furor, actually. People said she, her I voice sounds it. too mature. She can't play this little girl. But notice again, the, the chronology is what Greta Gerwig changes. We see Amy first as an adult off on the Europe trip with Aunt March. And there, as an adult, we see her run into Lori and they have a really natural bond of affection from years past growing up as children together, but they're not children when we see them. And so their relationship begins on the footing of adults. And all of the water under the bridge, only it's only hinted at and it deepens their connection off in a foreign land with only the two of them for company. It's also who says she can't play a little kid because that was stinking hilarious. Oh, (laughs) every time she stepped on screen, she lit it completely up. She really did. Her performance was excellent. But I think just to get back around to the conversation about directorial choices and film adaptations of books, there are two scenes in particular that Greta Gerwig inserted into the story that one of them has has words, and I'll talk about it in a moment, but the other one is just a passing scene. It's just a visual element that I think are her autobiographical notes inserted into the story. One of them, Joe is writing her novel at the end after Beth has died and all kinds of stuff has gone down. And she's, she's furiously writing. It's a, it's a writing montage, something that no one in real life experiences. We have like, you know, writer's, writer's block. block and, yeah. Yes, writing montage. It's no, agony. Not writing so much. montage where, where paper is just flying. You know, like the, the story <laughs> is being written before your very eyes. Well, Joe's having a moment like that. And there's a scene in the attic, her childhood attic, where the papers are all lied out and uh, laid, 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 laid out. Thank you. Lane? Laid out. Laid out. No, that's not it. <laughs> I think nah, you should keep that. that. Um, they're all laid out on the floor and organized. And Joe is standing over them and reorganizing the papers. She's moving the piles around. And it seems to me as I watched the movie that this is Greta Gerwig's project. She saw the story and she said, all good all good bones, all good elements. If we just <laughs> take this episode over here and we move this one over here, watch and see how the characters come to life. Look why you love this story. I will show you. I will show you why there's good stuff Wow, here. that is really compelling. She did things like in the reorganization process, she took Beth's death and made it the climax. But she emphasized that there was a, a matching scene, a foil scene earlier in the story when Beth is sick and she doesn't die. And she uses those two stories to basically tell you two halves to go back and forth between between modern day for Joe, grown up Joe, and young kid Joe, circling around those two conflicts with Beth. I thought that was so, so powerfully done. And, and to a purpose, there was a theme behind it. She basically said the first time when Joe was a kid, when Beth got sick, Joe's response was to say, God has not met my will. And I, when I say you get better, you get better. And she does. Beth does get better. In the eyes of a child, my will is ultimate. And I will bring to pass what should be. And there's a a light rosy glow. The costuming and the lighting of all of those childhood scenes is warm, right? But then when, when Beth's death does come around as the climax of the whole movie, the lighting is dark. Joe remembers the scene from before when her will would save Beth and she has to submit instead to a will that's greater than her own. 
and Beth goes and she's left feeling, feeling her smallness and hoping that something will come and fill that space. Of course it does, but that even just watching those two scenes get closer and closer together, the way that Greta Gerwig organized it made the, made the theme sing in a way that mm. it didn't in the original. Man. If that made sense. Even remembering watching it makes me want to bawl my eyes out. It was awfully oh, good. Oh, man. It was so powerful. Anyway, all of those, just to, to remind myself what I'm talking about here, all of those things were present in the original story, but they didn't, they didn't communicate like they were foils. They didn't show one another up as repetitions the way that they should have. And I think it's because of the organization. So Gerwig really set them free. So you wouldn't say it's because of the uh, uh, a fault in the medium. You would say that it's an organizational that, that Greta Gurry came along and reorganized the material chronologically in the order that it's presented to the viewer slash reader. And that was the thing that, that made it better, right? Yeah, what I you're would. saying is, That's interesting. for the most part, it sounds like what you're saying is that she didn't just improve on a previous movie. She improved on the book. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That might be, I don't know, we, we might get some pushback about that. Shots are fired. Okay, I'm just going to issue a quick disclaimer. If you are a listener to this show who loves little women and that is offensive to you, be that as it (laughs) may. Come at me, world. I happen to agree, though. I happen to agree. But what what are we saying when we say that? And this is not just for Megan; it's for all of you. Is such a thing possible? I mean, we already we mentioned the possibility of a bad book being turned into a good movie. We wouldn't call this a bad book. No, no. But we all will cop to calling it a little shallow, maybe. A little flat. Or, well, well, we, it would be easy for us to admit that a good book, even an American classic, can be improved upon. The only reason that you would deny that is to say that the author of an American classic is some sort of divine person who cannot be improved fair. upon. Well, I, I don't know. Fair point. You're treading on thin ice there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. The, the authors write their own stories, and so they are the masters of their own stories. Yeah. But given that, what I will say is when I read Louisa Malcott's book, although I enjoyed it very much, I found it thin when I taught it. Like I was striving to find deeper themes beyond the theme of growing up and the kind of nostalgic loss that's associated with it. How great sisters are. You know, and I grew up, I didn't have sisters until I was an adult. So I didn't have that experience in my home life to connect with. I did enjoy reading about it and wished very much that I'd had a bunch of sisters to communicate with like that. Um, so there was that element in the story, but I will say that when, when I watched Greta Gerwig's version of the story, the depth was, was present that was lacking in the story. I think the story does have depth, but you have to really meditate on it. You have to meditate on the, the experience in your own life of loss because there, there was, although Beth was the only one who died, the childhood itself passed away and all of the relationships between those characters changed when, when Meg marries, marries John, she doesn't move far away, but she's left in a really real way. And right before the wedding, Joe is begging her in the movie version to please don't, don't go, don't marry him. We have our own adventures to have. Why are you going to marry this guy? Stay with me. <laughs> and the response that Meg gives her is, well, because I love him. 
because I love him. Something has happened inside of her that's irreversible, that's pushing her forward into her future and that's dragging her sister towards the future as well. That idea of change that permanently alters relationships, even when geographic proximity isn't a part of the equation, just really moved me dramatically, maybe but because of the stage of our own family and the, the leave taking that is happening as all of you have reached adulthood and the final, the final ones kind of finish growing up and point their noses up and out, just watching the relational changes. Some of them are really delightful because those those mature relationships that I'm watching you have with one another are such a blessing to, to witness the changes and the growth as you become one another, not just playmates, but friends, deep friends. That's been mm-hmm. really beautiful to watch, but also painful to recognize. Yeah. To recognize the fact that you're each called not only to a vocation, but to, uh, to a life, you know, in a particular place, having a particular ministry, associating with particular friends, going to particular churches and that tight, tightly wound thread that was us is unraveling a little bit, being separated out like DMC mm. floss, you know, to make another picture. It, yeah. It, wow. I found it really, really moving. Megan and I watched it in preparation for this conversation today, just a couple nights ago. And halfway through the movie, I threw my arms around her and just started weeping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please Not don't. surprised. <laughs> well, okay. What's so what's interesting to me, I want to zoom in on this for a second because we've been talking for years, literally on bibliophiles about what good reading is like and how we're, we're striving to quiet our own minds, hearts and opinions in order to hear first and respond later and all of that. But it seems to me that Gerwig's interpretation of this story is a little bit of a blessing on a reality that we, we either tiptoe around or, or don't state super clearly at center for lit, which is that, you actually do have a personalized experience with every book mm. that you encounter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That in rubbing up against an author's ideas, new, uh, different fruit is going to be produced from me than it will be from you, Dad, or from you, Emily, because we bring our own emotional carpet bag full of stuff to bear on every book that we interpret. And it just reads like a blessing. This, this film reads like a blessing of that kind of reading and of that reality of encountering a story. Megan, what do you think? I love that, mostly because of the theme of Little Women. I think that it's accurate to the theme, which is, as mom was saying, as your family grows up and changes, you're tempted to see that as destructive, that the thing was perfect when it began, and now its new iteration is always lesser and lesser. Because different, therefore less. Right. Alcott is responding really intentionally to that. And she is arguing your family isn't destroyed by growing. It's when it changes, it grows. It gets bigger. Every time one of your sisters gets married, then a husband joins the family. And look how that changes the dynamic. And look what a blessing John Brooke is. And look how when Lori marries Amy, now their dynamic is new. And Professor Bear, welcome. You know, the idea is (laughs) your, your family gets bigger and changes, but change is not bad and be open minded. In the same way, everyone who reads this story reads it with their own lens and their life experience makes it richer. I think Gerwig is doing one more thing to emphasize that she is sharing with us her modern interpretation of womanhood as well. She's bringing in 
a, a huge conversation about what it is to be a woman. And she puts words in Joe's mouth. My other favorite scene in the story, Joe is talking to her mom in the attic. And she says, it's between her refusal of Lori and her getting together with Professor Bear. Right after Beth has died and Joe is very much lost, she's turned Lori down. She doesn't know that he's off in Europe wooing Amy. And she's, you know, broken up with Professor Bear because he criticized her work and she can't take it. And she's losing her mind with loneliness <laughs> that was a great and grief scene. In, at home. And she says to her mother something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the scene. I don't have it in front of me. But she says something to the effect of, here's what it is to be a woman. Everyone says I'm a heart, but I'm so much more than that. I have a mind and I have ambition and there are all these parts to me. And yet I am so lonely. And what do I do with what it is to be a woman, which is all of these things together. There's drive and potential and intelligence and passion and ambition. And at the same time, I'm so lonely. What I feel called to is a husband and a family. It was such a, a refreshing take on womanhood here in the modern era. And I could hear Greta Gerwig honoring a traditional view of womanhood, even as she brought it into conversation with, with the modern idea of feminism, right? I think. Well, isn't it ambiguous ahead, in her movie whether she actually does end up with Professor Bear? Isn't it kind of left to us to... Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Well, the publisher tells her that the book ends without a marriage and it can't be that way. And so she goes off and writes an ending, which leaves us to believe that it's a fiction, that that real Joe does not marry or reconcile that. with Professor Bear. But she fictionalizes an account of that. Yeah, that, it's ambiguous in the end. The scene in the rain is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, in the Greta Gerwig, he's present in the uh, final scene at that birthday party for her mother. Yeah, I was going to say at the house that she inherits. But are we, but then, Emily, what you're saying, though, is that we've been experiencing a blending of her real life and the book she's writing all along. It's the novel at that point. So that maybe that's the novel, not the reality. Because yep. she does say to the publisher, he, he demands that there be a marriage. No one will read it unless there's a marriage, he says. And so she says, fine, a marriage. I... I like that because of what Megan was saying, that it's both that she recognizes a portrait of womanhood that is both a heart and a head. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more relatable that, yes, Joe feels called to not be lonely and to engage in family life. But what if that wasn't for what her? If, what if he didn't come back? What if what if Friedrich never returned? Would she be OK? I also think that opens up a whole conversation about the purpose of art, because here she is pouring her heart and soul into a novel, and that's going to give her identity now. Now she's a published authoress, and will that make her happy? And I think that's a whole conversation. On the one hand, that piece of art paused time and captured the life of her little family to save it forever. This thing that was fleeting, she used her gift to save it. On the other hand, we are all, we're in a certain sense with the publisher. We hope that in the end, she's happy and loved and with someone. You know? Yeah. I thought you were going to talk about that scene when she takes Beth to the seaside in the movie. Greta Gerwig's version, they have a conversation and Beth is asking her to tell her a story that she's written. And she says, well, I'm not writing anymore because we know, the viewers know that she's had that conversation with Professor, with Professor Bear and kind of sworn off writing altogether for a time. Uh, <laughs> she's sucking so on a lemon. But Beth says, no, I want one of your old stories. Just tell me a story about, just tell, tell me our story. And she says, nobody wants to read our story. I mean, it's just like daily life. It's not important. 
And Beth says something in response like, writing it makes it important. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a, a really strong artistic statement coming through Greta Gerwig's voice here. Uh, the, the fact that Little Women as a book is a collection of household scenes, mm -hmm. really. And there isn't this dramatic, overarching, deep, um, action-packed narrative like there would be in a present-day children's novel. There's the ordinary humdrum events of these girls as they interact with each other and with the neighbor and with mom and, you know, grow up. It's, it's a very mundane kind of series of chapters, but she has a point that just like life, just like in life, the mundane actually tells a larger story and that when we stop and mark the mundane, write it down, as it were. when we write it down, we make it important. That's really true. Yeah. And now because she has done that, generations of women have grown up loving the March family, mm -hmm. wanting to be a member of the March family, as you said, Megan. Um, there's a rosy glow around that because she wrote it down. Mm -hmm. She preserved it. You made a comment earlier that we didn't really follow through on, which was that you think that this movie is more interesting to men as well as women. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, I don't know that I thought it through all the way to the bottom, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I, I we saw do have a couple of was. men in the, yeah, in the conversation. Yeah, maybe we should punt that to the men. I can guess, but I'm not a man. I know why it's interesting to me. Well, I think that I wouldn't have known what words to put it in until Megan gave us her little dissertation, which I thought, frankly, was very compelling. Uh, the idea of Gerwig coming in and saying, I know what you were shooting for. Let me help. If I, if, I, if I switched a couple things around, I think the thing would really land. And I think maybe my reaction was a uh, reaction based on form and structure and, and based on artistic voice. When I read the novel, I think, oh, my goodness, will this ever end? And how, Wait, wait, wait. Have you read the novel? Yeah. When did you read the novel? I read it a couple of years ago in preparation for teaching it. Mm. And I just thought that I hadn't, wasn't my first time as my, I think my second time through. And I thought this is, this is a, like you said a minute ago, Missy, a, a didactic, or maybe it was you, Megan, a didactic, it was me. bit ponderous, you know, you can't necessarily see where it's going, but when you get there, you think all this time, oh, goodness. And, right. and <laughs> I, because of the, maybe because of the kind of things you were saying that you were calling our attention to Megan about Gerwig's adjustments and her reorganizing chronology and giving uh deeper personal reasons for characters to do things like Lori marrying and that, that sort of thing. Um, I was, I was captivated and it wasn't the least bit ponderous and it would be easy for me to say, well, that's just because I'm, I, I want to sit slack jawed in front of a movie rather than do the work of, of reading a novel. But that, I don't think that was it. I, I really do think it, the story was, was more active and alive. It was leaner. It was, uh, it had a depth yeah. to it. I think you had to work harder to watch this movie than you did to read that book. Mm. I think you might be right. Ian, you should jump into, but Megan, I think a long time ago when you first watched it, you told me that you thought there, there's a scene, and I think it's towards the end when they're all together and they're all reuniting and all the women are together embracing one another, but off in the corner are John Brooks and Laurie and the neighbor, Laurie's guardian, uh, and they're watching them mm -hmm. and that that's kind of the point. Yeah. That 
that it's a meditation on oh yeah on womanhood but from but that's open that's open right it's a look watch observe yeah i yeah i forgot that i said that but i do, i do still think that i think also it's seeded in from the beginning because lori's lori's whole purpose both in the book and now even more in the movie is to be an observer a witness Absolutely. to the march family and to to yeah. feel the emotion she's hoping to elicit from all of us to look in at that picture that i mean the old fashioned you know plate in a book of this beautiful scene of all these women sitting around their mother and reading this letter from their dad. He is standing there. Lori's standing in the doorway, watching them hustle around and be warm. And the way that Greta Gerwig um, shows us that scene at the beginning, he brings Meg, he helps Joe bring Meg home from a dance because she sprains her ankle or whatever. It's the middle of the night, but that house is alive. All the girls are in their PJs and dancing around and reading books and doing all crazy stuff. And the mother, Marmy, is baking in the middle of the night. And she rushes over to Lori and says, how are your ankles? Have you sprained your, would you like to come in? Can I get you some ice? I like to bake in the middle of the night. Please come in. And he says, oh, thank you, ma'am. And she says, not ma'am. I'm mother or Marmy. And it zeroes back in on Lori's face. And you get to watch the great Timothy Chalamet experience the emotion of that scene, which is to feel enveloped and welcomed and to appreciate what a crowd of women does which is make make an excess of home where there's room for ah, you, you know? Well said. Was, yeah, I yes. think you're right. She, beautiful. she nails the, the concept of the woman being the heart of the home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the heart well, of I think also, I'll, I'll jump in and throw my oar here, is I think that she also, and I mean Gerwig, not Louisa May Alcott, yeah. she also does a great job of understanding what a man's role in all of that is, which is, you can't say that, I don't think, of a lot of movies in our era. I think we gender roles get weird in, in popular American storytelling right now. But in this story, it starts there. It starts with Lori being an observer and, and needing something that they have, right? He needs the warmth and he needs affirmation and he needs to be, he needs to be mothered, which is basic human man need. We all need that. We need to be mothered first. And then later on, they all need something that he's bringing to the table, or at, at least at least Joe and then Amy both do. Um, Joe needs to have the experience of having to tell him no, and he needs to experience being told no. And then Amy needs the experience of being pursued by him. And, and so it's a coming of age story for him as well, whereas he was sort of a cardboard observer in the in the novel. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I loved I loved it for that reason. I, I really identified with his character and. And thought he was just as much clothed in flesh as the rest of them. I loved the scene where Professor Bear comes to the house. She fleshes that out a little bit with the same kind of watching. The men standing and watching what's going on. Women are watching too, but they're a little bit more involved and a little more, well, they're ahead of the curve. They're seeing this happen (laughs) immediately. Oh, this is the one that Joe loves, right? Lori keeps saying, and who are you? (laughs) Sorry. And who are you? Who is this? Who are you? Someone tell me who he is. Someone tell me who he is. But I, I thought that was um, significant. He says, not just I funny. forgot. He says in the background as they're going to race out after Professor Bear into the rain. Who ever thought that I would get the horses for Joe to chase a man? But I like it. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, he does say that. Yeah, yeah. It was. I hope that was ad libbed. Man, that guy's funny. Yeah, I appreciated that he was an active spectator in that moment. And the question that he was asking was earnest, not an aside. 
not just who is this, I'm dumb and I'm out of the picture, but I'm at the center of this household. I have been made one of the March children and the March family belongs to me. And who are you? Yeah. Why are you here? What are you, what are you doing mm-hmm. here? Yeah. What is your relationship yeah, with this woman? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, that was beautiful. It's interesting too, that Lori asks that and her father doesn't. Her father is conspicuously absent in the book. He actually is not present for, I don't think any of the events of the story, but Greta Gerwig brings him back and emphasize, she uses him to emphasize the consequence of his living by his ideals. I think she, that is her attempt to draw in Louisa May Alcott's own father figure and the destructiveness of that transcendental movement on their family culture. The women actually mm. suffered as a result of him thinking only of his ideals and not considering them. And so the father is in the background and not as significant to these women as the next door neighbor or as Lori, who are invested in them and concerned with their well-being. And it's about relationships, you know? I think I can see that you're right about that. That, that, isn't, that isn't how I read it. I felt like she brought him back into to bless, to bless scenes. Brought him, brought him back into because because the the girls themselves and their mother love him. Yes. Oh, yeah. And swear by him, and he's present in their minds and in their hearts and in their living room at all times. Mm-hmm. And she really took care. I think Gerwig did to direct the movie so that that was still true. But I, I, I get your point. I think I think there's two elements present there. Yeah, and it could be that what I'm hearing is not just. A reference to the context, but is also her attempt to deepen Marmy's character. Because one of the things she does for Marmy is introduces that Marmy's not perfect. She's not just the one who delivers the, the preaching sermons at the end of every chapter. And the um, current buns next door. Right. But she's actually this woman who's been struggling to maintain her self-control, even though she has a temper every bit as strong as Joe's and always has, and is trying to live this life that she chose because of love without her husband. And she's actually, you know, She's hoeing a hard row, as it were. But then her husband comes back and there's this scene at the dinner table. It's like a happy dinner time scene. And Friedrich is there, Friedrich Bear, and he's talking about how he's going to go away to California because that's where there are new opportunities and there's new, like, fresh ideals there for immigrants in California. And the, it's just a passing comment, but Father March says something to the effect of, maybe I should go to California. Hey, hey, maybe I should go. New idea. And Marmy grabs his hand, slaps it down on the table, and she goes, you're not an immigrant. Maybe you should stay home. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just a tiny little thing. But I just think her work of art is deep. And the more you look, the more there is to see and appreciate. And I, as a lover of Little Women, I thought this was the best version I've ever seen. And I hope they never do it again. (laughs) Yeah, this should probably end the Little Woman. I don't know if I agree with you that they should never do it again. I, I think that the fact that in every generation they want to make it again, that that actually puts, how do I, how do I want to say that? I think it justifies its classic status. You know, a classic is a book that every generation wants to read again because it's contributing something to the conversation about the great ideas that it's enjoining. And it's not, it's not a static conversation, but the idea itself is transcendent in such a way that every generation comes back to that particular story and says, this one, this one needs to be told again. Mm -hmm. We can't lose this one, right? Good point. Some books are written just for 
their own generation. And they may be very good books and be saying something really important to that particular generation that receives it, but it doesn't last. It's not reprinted over and over again for hundreds of years because it was speaking into a moment instead of speaking about something transcendent and universal. Transcendent. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Transcendent. Well, Get my... It? Get it? Transcendent. <laughs> walls. My sort of parting shot, I guess, is that I wouldn't have called Little Women a classic except begrudgingly until I saw this adaptation. And now I maybe would, because that was awfully deep. I might be with you, Ian. I think that that version of the movie did us did us a great service by introducing us again to Alcott's book and saying, oh, no, 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 you might have missed it. This was great. It was the most intimate. I think it was definitely the most intimate portrayal of Alcott's story. Megan, thank you. That was really, really compelling. It was so good. Thanks. It was fantastic. Thanks for letting me, you know, get on my hobby horse and ride for a while. <laughs> That's great. That's great. We got to put you up there more often. <laughs> it's we, We've kept you over long. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We will be back again in a week or so with more to say about yet another film adaptation of a classic novel. And until then, my friends, happy reading or watching or whatever sort of story consumption you're doing. <laughs> we'll see you then. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to Bibliophiles. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a moment, please rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word and add more voices to the great conversation. Join us next week when we'll be talking about The Great Gatsby and what it means to interpret classic stories through the lens of the current cultural moment. In the meantime, visit our website or social media platforms to tell us what Little Women adaptation is your favorite. And until next time, happy reading, everyone.